It's leading us to a beautiful treasure. Let's pay careful attention to, uh, to where your word leads us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. All right, first point. Out of sight, but not out of mind. First point. Out of sight, but not out of mind. Now, before we get into the passage, I just want to kind of remind us of context. Where are we in the letter of Colossians? Kind of, you know, what's the flow of Colossians been? We talked a little bit briefly this morning in Sunday school. This is like working out very nicely. Colossians 1, 1 through 14, greetings, introduction. Verses 15 through 20, that's when Paul, as we recall from last week, went to like full throttle praise and adoration of Jesus as the Son and the image of the invisible God. 21 through 23, very interesting passages, but kind of a, a quick you know, explanation of the gospel there. 24 all the way through 29, that's Paul talking about his particular ministry to the church, kind of what God has called him to do. And now that leads us up to where we are. So there's a little bit of um, context about where we are in the letter of Colossians. Now, what sort of position uh, is Paul in right now? Is he seaside? Is he like at a Mediterranean villa right now, like reclining, overlooking the pool? The gentle waves are rolling in. He's just writing sweet letters to Colossians. No. Is he, is he up in the top of the ivory tower? The lamp is, is burning. He's slaving over there in his castle and he's writing to his kingdom and his subjects. No. Obviously, he's not that. But maybe he's at least at home, like in his most comfortable chair. The fireplace is crackling. No. He's in danger for his life. He's in Rome. He's in prison. Foreign land. Foreign enemies. Far from the creature comforts of home. He actually ends Colossians. Turn that page and say the, the very last verse of Colossians. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace, grace be with you. I love that ending. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. <laughs> so that's kind of the context of where Paul is. He's under duress. I mean, he's in danger. This is not like a, a sweet spot for him. Uh, his own life is at stake. And that leads us to this verse, though, where he starts off. This is what he's saying to the Colossians. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. He's in prison. He's in danger for his life. And he's saying, hey, I want you to know how, how concerned I am about you. So if you're the Colossians, you think, are you kidding me, Paul? I mean, it's pretty like, you know, it's not, not all roses and butterflies here, but you're in prison. Your life is at stake and you're worried about us. That makes me think of like a soldier who's, um, who's like been out on the battlefield. He gets wounded. He's back in the hospital tent. And he's, uh, you know, he's on the brink. He's barely making it. But he's writing letters back home to like his kid brother. And he's like, hey, you know, you keeping up with your grades in school? Helping down on the farm? Is that bully still messing with you? Like those types of things. You're like, you know, the kid brother's like, I've got it. It's okay. That's kind of what I, what I think here. Like Paul is, he's checking in on, on the Colossians. He's genuinely concerned about them. If his life is at stake and he's concerned about them, what does that communicate, though? Just genuine affection. That's love. I mean, he's genuinely concerned about the Colossians there. We all know the phrase, people don't care how much you know unless they know. How much you care. Yeah, thank you. That was kind of weak. Maybe not all of us know that. (laughs) Um, But that's a great one. So people don't. Care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I feel like Paul is like, he's demonstrating that here. He's communicating to the Colossians, hey, I care. The word here that he says, how great a struggle for you I have. It's kind of an interesting translation there. But he's saying like, hey, I've got this, I'm in conflict when I, when I think about what you guys 
are doing and where you guys are at. I feel like my insides are all torn up. The, the word there in Greek, translated as struggle, is actually agon, which we get the word agony or agonizing. So Paul, he's saying like, hey, I'm in agony over, over uh, where you guys are at. I'm agonizing. Um, he's not holding back feelings at all. He's demonstrating exactly how he feels towards the believers there. And we see here, too, that it's not just the ones that he knows. It's not just the, the Colossians that he knows. He says, for, for you, so he's talking to the Colossians, for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Church history and tradition kind of has um, Paul writing the first letter to Timothy. So 1 Timothy is written in Colossae, or like in the greater, in the Laodicea area. And so there's a good chance that Paul probably knew a lot of these people, um, had spent some time there, knew some of these people face-to-face, had some really good personal relationships there. But it's not just those people that Paul's talking to. He's talking about even the people that he doesn't know that well. Out of sight, but not out of mind. A couple of years ago in Brazil... Uh, a plane crashed carrying an entire Brazilian professional soccer team. Um, all but two members of the team died in the plane crash. If you're familiar with like the We Are Marshall story, if you've seen that movie, familiar with that, it's super similar. Um, but it just happened a couple years ago. And when I heard that, I, my heart like, ached for that team and for uh, the families and friends and the fans of that team. And I feel like I'm sure that news is sad to anybody. Who hears that news? But as like a soccer player, it's just such a tragedy that like a whole team, a whole program would would go down in in you know one plane. I thought about like if even one member of the men's national soccer team died, I'd be like so torn up about that. And and whether you knew me or not, if you were a member or if you were a fan of U.S. soccer, we would feel that loss together because we kind of have that special bond. Paul's speaking of that there. Or he's speaking that kind of bond here for even those he doesn't even know face to face. That bond that I was talking about with soccer is just like a shadow of what we have in the church. Because a special grace has been given to the church. The spirit is binding us together so that when one of us grieves, we all grieve. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. That's what Paul is kind of, he's telling us, I haven't even seen these guys, but I'm agonizing over them. And why? Because I want these things for them. This is what I want for them. This is why I'm in agony. Read there in verses 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So second point. Second point. Why is Paul in agony? What's he agonizing over? He wants these... Colossians to experience these two things. We're about to talk about them. Second point, Carabas in Spanish class. Carabas in Spanish class. Paul says he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them, he wants consolation for them. He wants comfort. He wants them to have like a peace and a, a deeply satisfying repose, a solace for the saints there. And how are they going to get that? They're only going to get that if their hearts are knit together in love. It says there. How are their hearts going to be knit together in love? We see in later on in Colossians 3. Uh, uh, yeah, late, later on in Colossians 3, like in the 15th to the 17th, or I can't remember what the exact reference is. But he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the only way we're going to be knit together in love, the only way we're going to be bound together in perfect harmony is through love. But get this. Later in Colossians 2, later in this verse... He actually says, he's talking about the church, the body growing together. And he says, 
through the whole body, nourished and knit together. He actually uses the exact same language. The whole body is nourished and knit together through Christ as the head of the body. So the body cannot be knit together in love. The body cannot be bound together in perfect harmony unless it has Christ as the head of the body. He goes on to say, so one, he's wanting their hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love. And the second thing he desires, he agonizes over the church at Colossae to know and experience the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery. He wants full assurance. He wants full understanding for the believers there. He's saying, don't content yourself with just a slight case. We do this with restaurants that we love. I know that Mary and I do this with restaurants we love because we're obsessive about good food. It's a problem. Might be a sin problem, but we can talk about that later. Um, when I, whenever I hear, like, if we're talking about, like, a great restaurant and so and so, like, someone's just like, I mean, we tried it once and we were like, you know, so, so we're like, whoa, 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 wait up. What did you get there? Did you, you got the risotto? You cannot get the risotto. <laughs> did you get the calamari appetizer? Actually, I am talking about Kravas right now. Like, you gotta go. Um, you know, or, or if they're just like, hey, we just went after the movies and it was late for desserts and it was crowded. We're like, okay, no, you've got to go again. You need to experience it. You, like, Mary and I are passionate about that because we've had a full understanding. <laughs> we've literally tasted the, the riches of Carabas. Um, so, <laughs> um, so Paul's saying that. He's saying, like, don't just go for a taste. Don't just get, you know, the appetizer. Like, go there and experience it. Go deep. I took... Two years of Spanish class in high school. You might get where I'm going with this. Suffice it to say, I didn't apply myself fully in Spanish class. And so I just got like a slight taste of Spanish. Two years. And I just got a taste of it. Because I did not really go deep. I got way more on the soccer field uh, of Spanish than I did in two years of high school classes. Compare and contrast that with in college. I go and I look at, I study uh, Koine Greek, which is like New Testament Greek. So I'm like, you know, super fascinated with that. So I definitely, I go deeper. I taste more. I dive in a little bit more. It's super interesting to me. It's fascinating. I love all the nuance and the idioms and all that stuff that kind of makes the text come alive. But I had a roommate, Tim, who actually, who preached here a couple months ago. Tim studied, Tim studied Greek for three years. So... He really went deep. I got to where I really enjoyed it. I, I loved looking at it. But honestly, I've lost most of that because I don't still regularly practice it. Tim got to the point where he didn't feel like practicing anymore. Because he, he could just read fluently out of Greek like I read English. That's what Paul wants for the believers there. He's wanting them to go deep into it. He, uh, that's what David in the Psalms, that's what he wants for Israel. He's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. So God wants that for his people to come to the riches. There are riches in full assurance and understanding. That's what God wants for his people. He says, I don't want you to just try the appetizer sampler at the restaurant. I want you there five days a week. I want you to explore the menu. I don't want you to, I mean, forget Spanish class in high school. Go live in Madrid for 20 years. Then you'll know the language. Then you'll, you'll know a lot more than the language. That's what God is desiring for his people to go deep into Christ. Too many of us, us, me, you, you, we just content ourselves with a taste of Jesus, with just like a taste of his community, of his church. And we, we think we've got him, but we can go so much deeper. 
Third point. Watson, the mystery is solved. Watson, the mystery is solved. Third point. Finish up that verse. Talking about God's mystery. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 2 again. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, we can't skip over that line. Paul wants his readers to have a deep and rich understanding of the mystery, which is Jesus. So he wants his readers to have a deep and rich understanding of who Jesus is. Now, Ephesians and Colossians, they speak a whole lot about uh, the mystery of God. Um, like we said last week, before Jesus, the mystery of God is completely unsolved before him. I mean, God is very much a mystery uh, to all of his, his people. You know, no one was really even close to solving the mystery before Jesus arrives on the scene. Paul says at the beginning, beginning of, or at the end of Colossians chapter 1, we read this this morning, um, this mystery has been hidden for ages and generations but now revealed. So, who was doing the hiding? Well, we've got to say in some sense that like God was doing the hiding. That God in mercy has, has hidden himself from man. Abraham, enough was revealed to him so that he could believe. Enough was revealed to Moses and David and thousands of saints of old. Enough had been revealed so that they could believe and it would be counted to them as righteousness. But safe to say, none of them had any idea how exactly and how fully and comprehensively one man would unlock the mystery. One man would reveal God. So the mystery of God had been hidden for ages and generations. God had done the hiding and then God does the revealing and sending his son. And Jesus is the full revelation. He's the, the key that unlocks the mystery. If Sherlock is looking at the mystery here, he's fixated on Jesus because everything is circling and focused around him. He's the key. He's the puzzle. He's the puzzle piece that, that kind of makes it all work. And Paul is saying here that he wants the Colossians to understand and know Jesus, to go deep into Jesus, to fully understand him. Like in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 20 years in Madrid learning the language. Nothing else. Just Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I'm going to know God, or I'm going to know Jesus, and in turn, know God. 1 John 2.23 says, if you have the Son, then you have the Father. And likewise, if you don't have the Son, then you don't have the Father. If, you if you're wrong on Jesus, you're wrong on God. How else could you know Him fully? He is the full revelation. He is the, the image of that invisible God that you can't see otherwise. Amen. Messed up. You might, in other religions, get some uh, glimpses of who God is. Maybe just a little bit. You might get a glimpse of His holiness, or a glimpse of His wrath, or His justice, or His compassion. Just little glimpses. But outside of Jesus, you cannot see Him. He is the revelation. Until you're looking at Jesus, you can't really look at God. So third point, the mystery is solved, Watson. Fourth point, X marks the spot. Verse 3. The completion of that, that verse. Understanding the, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Before I uh, kind of spent some time in, in Colossians, I just guess I hadn't really ever like looked 
through the, the letter all that much, and I just hadn't seen that verse, like really seen it. That is now one of my favorites. I love that. What a like, beautiful, like poetic way of talking about the glories of Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden there in Jesus. I love that. So in what way are the treasures hidden? Well, there is a treasure map. And in that treasure map, there's a little dotted line. And it's weaving its way through Scripture, leading us to the treasure. And it starts in the garden with the promise. And it leads us to Canaan, then to Egypt, past the pyramids, then through a Red Sea, then up Sinai, down again, around Jericho seven times. You can see what I'm getting here. Uh, it goes you know, up Mount Carmel, all the way out to Babylon through a fiery furnace, then back to Canaan. And then it seems all, you know, all along the way, there's like these clues and there's these hints that are dropping, that are pointing towards a future treasure, towards something hidden that's worth the search. All these years, hang on, the buried treasure is worth it. And then the dotted line goes cold. Can't find it. Seems like all hope is lost. Where did the path go? And then it reappears in Bethlehem. And we think, we've been here before with another king. This might be it. And we follow that line, and there are a host of angels singing, and there are shepherds running, telling, and there are wise men bearing gifts. And there are healing and blessings and miracles. And there's teaching with authority. And there's a true vine and a bread of life. And the good shepherd. But that path, that dotted path, leads to suffering and anguish. And it goes all the way up to a cross on the top of a hill. And there, X marks the spot. But the treasure map says, look up there. And that broken and bloody man are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's beautiful. And X marks the spot. Fifth point, fool's gold. Now we've actually only done verses 1 through 3, but I wanted to finish in verses 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And I kind of wrestled with this verse like... How, like all that beauty in these first three verses and all, the, all this beauty of, you know, talking about the glories of Jesus. And he says it so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That kind of, that was very interesting to me. But they've got to be, obviously that's super important to Paul because he's saying, I'm saying this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul is so worried about, he's, he's so concerned that People are going to come on with, uh, with different arguments, different additions later on. He talks about, uh, throughout the rest of Colossians, he talks about philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions in regards to food and drink. He's concerned with asceticism, people going on in detail about visions and revelations. And he's saying, hey, look, these are all going to have the appearance of wisdom, but that's it. Just the appearance. You want wisdom? Jesus. That's where it's at. Go deep there. Paul knows that men are going to come along and they're going to add stuff because that's what we do. We just add stuff to it. If it really comes down, and the, 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 I think the primary reason why we add stuff to it is because if it really comes down to Jesus and the cross and the grace, I've got nothing over you guys. I can't elevate myself over you in any way. No, no, like no power to sway over you. The cross is the power, and it levels us all, all laid bare before it. 
Paul knows anything, anything in addition to the treasure that is Jesus is not real gold. It's just fool's gold. You might feel like, uh, you might look at something and it might look really good, might look shiny on the outside, might have the appearance of wisdom, but it's worthless. Yes, Jesus saves you, but you also have to be circumcised. Fool's gold. Yes, Jesus saves you, but you've got to dress like this. You've got to be at least in church three times a week to, to have right standing with God. Fool's gold. We add things onto the, onto the gospel because we think the gospel needs more. We think it isn't enough, that his grace isn't enough, that Jesus' sacrifice saves you, and fill in the blank. We do it all the time. But it isn't. Because here's the thing with the treasures hidden in Christ. You can open up that chest, that treasure chest, and you can start ripping out all the gold and the trinkets and the crowns and the glories and the jewels and everything, and you can just keep digging and digging and digging and digging, and you will never reach the bottom. That's the thing with Jesus and the riches that are hidden in Him. It will take you an eternity to mine the depths there. That's how full of, of the riches that He is. So, anything in addition to Him, fool's gold. Whenever you think that you need something more, it's at that point in particular that you need to dive deeper into Jesus. That is the only thing that's going to satisfy that craving. I'll end with this, that we, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do, we try to add things, but we're only going to find contentment and fulfillment in your son. So instead of going to other wells, instead of trying to find other things to, to fill that, that gap and that hole of contentment, let us dig deeper into Jesus. Knowing that we can't get to the bottom. Knowing that we will only be satisfied there. Help us to, to see and to hear. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to um, taste deeply the riches of Jesus. Amen.